BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Anne Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroesfilm.com to get tickets now. There are many things that link us as people. Many have positively contributed to the betterment of humankind, housed and unhoused. Our society overzealously drums into us respectability. We must drive a certain car, score a certain SAT score, do all the right things. When that pipe dream smoke drifts away, we become looking to blame others. Oftentimes, it's usually the unhoused or people in more vulnerable conditions. This episode highlights the struggles of housed, nearly evicted, and racialized women and how they are finding their inner somebody to stand tall and make a difference in society. Our guests are Michelle Liu, founder chef of Zenmei Bistro. It's hard to run the business for the beginning. Yeah. And what happened? Um, because the business so slow. And then... Uh, what about the family? Did your family say Yes. <laughs> Very sad. What, what did they say? Oh, don't run the business. <laughs> Stop the business. But I don't want, and because I don't want to give up. So um, I start to learn the uh, cook, and then the cook tell me how to cook Chinese food. Uh, after that, the business going up. Laura Fighter. Oh yeah, definitely. As far as like happy stories goes too, I was gonna say that's a delusional. We uh, when we're out here, this is this is a hard life to live, and we have to tell ourselves a story, a fake story, just to get through every day. It's not it's not fair because you have to somehow put a smile on your face and act like you're you're happy, even though you're miserable in the situation. Because otherwise, society treats you badly because you're not sitting there acting like this is fine, man. I'm loving this. This experience no I, there we, our dignity is taken down so much by being in this situation Ken Kim anybody it don't matter they have rich or poor homeless anybody we are human beings we need to play to live like they do too okay we don't matter they rich they come and kick us like that 
It'll be poor, no money, but we work hard to pay our rent every single month. We never miss the day. We pay on time, make sure, everything. But they're not so happy. They try to kick us out like uh, we are criminal. Cherise. And tell them to go to CVS or they have to pay online, which is $35 fee or the CVS $4 fee, cash only. And we have to send the code and stuff like that. But with the code, my cousin took him like two days. They didn't even reach back to us. And the time is almost up already. It's just a hassle. I just feel like at this point, it's just harassment. And they just sent us recently that they're going to increase the rent after sending us eviction notice. And Melissa Acedera. I think because I'm able to help some of these families, just to even bridge the gap between the next time their EBT kicks in, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And I've done that so many times where they're like, Melissa, hey, you know, EBT is not going to kick in till the 10th. Can you, you know, can you bring us like, you know, even just like a bag of rice and beans? And I'm just like, that's fine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like at least just that little bit to make sure that they're covered. But this shouldn't be the case. You know what I mean? It shouldn't be the case the same way that like, we shouldn't have to work two jobs to be able to put a roof over our heads. We shouldn't have to like, break our backs to be able to just feed our kids. But the fact that I feel like sometimes food is the last thing on people's minds, this is important work. Join us for this episode of A Woman is the Full Circle. topic that's been going around that we cannot avoid. In the unhoused community, we're the most vulnerable, and that is the outbreak of the coronavirus. There's some facts and myths that's going on, but let's dispel one of them. The coronavirus was not spread by unhoused people, despite no matter what the vigilantes say. The unhoused community has been asking incessantly for the city to provide portable bathrooms, mobile showers, and sanitation pickup. What they have done in response to those requests has painted the picture that unhoused people are service resistant, a nuisance, and they have utilized the vigilantes in their community to push that to crack down and do horrific targeted sweeps. The second thing we need to talk about is that unhoused people are in danger from the coronavirus from the housed community, in particular the police, because they interact with people all sorts of days, all sorts of times, I should say, as well as in different interactions. They can be carrying the disease and not even know it because many of the coronavirus victims have the disease and they don't know it. So anytime when an unhoused person that they interact after a NIMBY is called 311 to terrorize them, they go and interact and infect the unhoused population, and in turn, in the unhoused community is infected, this police officer can go back into his home and kiss his wife and kids and infect them. They, in turn, go to school, infect their classmates. They go in school, go to infect their parents, as well as go to their churches or synagogues or other places of worship, and now they have created an epidemic. The house community is the danger. The unhoused community is not. So what quarantine measures are we going to impose on them? Will we ship them to the desert? Will where the outcry will be what is necessary? Because let's face it, these politicians, they are always grabbing the hands of these NIMBY supporters who may have had this coronavirus and then they unleash this disease on vulnerable people. 
Another issue I'm very concerned about with the coronavirus is that there is not sufficient enough medical testing that is required or available for housed and unhoused people. This menace that has been spread by the house community, let's be clear, these people that have been infected have not been unhoused people, they have been housed people. So there has to be some quarantine measures against the housed community. Why are we not putting them in the desert? So there you have it. Here is the fact that masks that you see the people wearing, unless you are infected, is ineffective. Also, if you are afraid about the coronavirus, you avoid touching your eyes, nose and mouth. You stay home when you're sick, but that's just usually not available to capitalistic uh, country we have. And it's hard to do if you always are interacting with the police and park rangers because they're the ones that are trying to infect the unhoused community. The more you know, the more you prepare and the more you say something about it. In the last episode of Weezy Unhoused, we heard accounts from the Chatsworth residents about the targeted harassment done in concert with Councilmember Lee, such as twice-a-day raids, sweeps, targeted ticketing by sheriffs to jail the unhoused, and loud blurring music. Recently, Councilmember John Lee is targeting a sole RV on a street in Chatsworth. He signed on March 6, 2020, a resolution that uses municipal codes section 80.69.4 prohibiting the parking of vehicles in excess of 22 feet in length or over 84 inches on both sides of Devonshire Street from Wilbur Avenue to Van Alden Avenue. In other news, for the unhoused, the coronavirus guidelines can be impossible. Dr. Barbara Ferrer, director of the Los Angeles County Public Health Department said, many of the strategies that we ask for people to take who are unsheltered are actually impossible. The city has in part have conducted brutal sweeps, locked bathrooms in Mitchell Farrell's Echo Park restrooms and refused to have mobile showers in or across the city. They have been successful at displacing many unhoused residents as well as taking their belongings and destroying them. In other news, encampment sweeps take away houseless people's most important belongings, which has brought with a class action lawsuit from unhoused residents and seven unhoused people. Lead plaintiff Janet Garcia and an employed unhoused resident who's a house cleaner had her belongings taken by the Los Angeles Sanitation Department. You will remember council member president Nuri Martinez directing city council members to target unhoused belongings until they have nothing left. Her campaign, along with a close concert with the Los Angeles Police Department, the Sanitation Department, has been largely successful. They have displaced many unhoused residents, many of them having disabilities, and targeting by jailing them or threatening to jail them, paraplegics, uh, throwing away prosthetic legs, uh, throwing away wheelchairs, uh, medication, important papers, and constantly harassing end-stage cancer uh, patient a mad dog in Hollywood. So as a result of this, the city has tried to find ways to continue this place and target unhoused residents. 
and find loopholes for uh, bulky items. Once the settlement, if it is an up- upcoming or if there will be a settlement, they would continue to do the same thing, but now with the impact or the agreement of a settlement. When the loopholes are enacted, this will enrage rank and file police officers, disgust sanitation officials, and infuriate the Denby community. Lastly, a study shows that a vast majority of people receiving houseless services have held down jobs, some right until they have become unhoused. The coronavirus has affected the stock market, business, recreational activities, and eateries. In Chinatown, this has been affected the hardest. With fear and anti-Asian sentiment, our next guest is no stranger to adversity. Michelle Liu is the owner and chef of Zinmei Bistro. She joins us now. (laughs) This is Theo Henderson from Weedy Unhoused. And I talk about unhoused issues and how it affects uh, the different issues that go on. But this issue links the unhoused community as well as the housed community. And do you know what that is? Food. Another thing that is linking, but is not as a great idea, has been the coronavirus. There has been a lot of talk and a lot of uh, panic and a lot of unnecessary fear about uh, coronavirus. It has hit our communities in different ways. I, as an unhoused man, has uh, known Michelle Liu here for many years, and I eat at her restaurant. And I want to touch base because it's also Women's History Month, and what many don't know is Miss Liu is the owner and the cook of Zidmei Bistro in Los Angeles, Chinatown. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce her, and I'm going to ask her a few questions about her business and how she got started, and what are the challenges that's going on right now due to what's going on with this ignorance that's being spread. So, hi, Michelle. Hi, Tio. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we've known each other for a long time, but the audience don't know. How long have we known each other? Um, about maybe, uh, I think it's 12 years or, yeah. yes. <laughs> How did we meet? Where did you used to go? Do you remember? Uh, go to the park. Yeah. Yeah, for, for my son to play the basketball. He yes. was he was a very he's big now, but he was a very little kid then. So um, I also used to come here to eat. At the time, you didn't own the place, but what were you? Going, what was going on? Uh, because my husband lost job, and then uh, this restaurant is close my uh, house, and uh, it's easy to take care of my children. So I take this business. I would say this was the year around the recession. So was it hard or easy, or did people tell you to stop or not? It's hard to run the business for the beginning. Yeah. And what happened? Um, because the business so slow. And then... Uh, what about the family? Did your family yes. say? Yes. <laughs> Very sad. What, what did they say? Oh, don't run the business. <laughs> stop the business. But... I don't want, and because I don't want to give up, so um, I start to learn the uh, cook, and then the cook tell me how to cook Chinese food. Uh, after that, the business going up, 
Yeah. Uh huh. Right now, our business is good because uh, our first no MSG, less soil, and less oil. So it's different. Here's another fact that uh, Michelle has done because many people, many stores, even in Chinatown, they don't really treat unhoused people well or people that are on the streets. There's a sign that's full uh, out there saying don't give money. Um, but because we've been friends for so many years, she has really have looked out for me, um, like if I needed my phone charged or because the places don't allow it or um, when I come to eat, I'm always treated with dignity and respect. And that I can't say that is, is everywhere. It's just not in Chinatown, but there have been places. So when I heard the challenges that's been going on with the coronavirus fears and prejudices, and I felt that it was affecting the business, I felt that we needed, I needed to do something. And this is one of my ways of doing it. So what has been going on? Uh, what have you know that's been going on with the coronavirus? The Korean coronavirus. Yeah, virus uh, affect our business uh, right now. Uh, the people scary to come out for eat. Uh, yeah. Uh -huh. When you said that, people are scared to eat. I have to show you this. This is one of my favorite. She, she's probably gonna laugh, yes. but this is one of my favorite meals up here. Yes. What, what is this? That's a uh, fish fillet with. Spicy sauce. <laughs> and usually she she knows because I always it's it's got so bad that when I go in a restaurant, then they should, when she, they go and speak in Chinese, but they say Theo, they automatically know what it is. So I have to show you that it's like I've been here mostly. I was here last night, and I'm here today, and I'm showing you that I'm alive. There's nothing happened to me. <laughs> so, this restaurant has been, how long have you been with the restaurant? Uh, over seven years. Seven years, and it's gone to busy right now. And you have some customers in here, but usually sometimes it's really packed during lunchtime. Yes, uh, the lunchtime is uh, very busy. So, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. So, here he is. A, a example of how we let prejudice and fear runs us just the same as we do with the unhoused community. Based on our prejudices and fears, we let us make panic reactions. I'm here to say that as, as people, as our humanity has been always questioned or, or been misused, we need to re-examine those kind of things because those images that we have of unhoused people and of other people of other uh, races, Chinese or African-American, or even in our own communities, if we have anti-Asian bias or anti-black sentiment, we need to understand that we all are in the same boat now, that we all are trying to do the best we can in this planet, and we should be much more kinder and humane to one another. This is Theo Henderson from We The Unhoused, and I thank you all for listening. May we all again meet in the light of understanding. This segment of Women's History Month, I titled, Did You Know? Did you know that Jennifer Lopez left on the sofa of her dance studio? Holly Berry is known around the world, but she stayed in a shelter in her early 20s when she moved to New York. We hear her songs on Christmas time and jazz records, but Ella Fitzgerald was an unhoused teenage runaway. 
until debuting at the Apollo Theater in 1934. Here is a huge did you know. The Asian American population are underrepresented in the houseless population. The unhoused population of Asian Americans have rapidly increased by a rate of 44%, which is the highest growth among all racial groups. The unhoused population of Asian Americans in Los Angeles make up 1% of the 14% that live here. The Department of Housing and Urban Development estimates that 6,700 Asian Americans are living on the streets and living in shelters, and 10,000 people are living in transitional housing, which are temporary housing that shelter unhoused people for up to 24 months. 12.3% of Asian Americans live below the federal poverty line, and 20% Native Americans and Pacific Islanders live in poverty. This is The More You Know. Angelo said, we may encounter many defeats, but we must not be defeated. Laura Fighter represents this thinking well. Let's hear her story. We're here in the studios on a lovely Sunday afternoon. We're out in Grand Park in downtown Los Angeles. Hi, I'm Theo Henderson from Weezy Unhoused, and I have another guest here that's enjoying this lovely Sunday and with this extraordinary dog. I like this dog. It's very friendly. I think it's a German Shepherd, is it? Yep, German Shepherd mix. Uh, so I'm going to let her introduce her, and we're going to just take a, a usual conversation from there. So hello. Hi, I'm Laura. Hi, Laura. Uh, I understand that you're unhoused. We met just today, and I want to hear how did you become unhoused, and we can t take it from there. Well, it's been about two years now. I was involved in a relationship. Um, he talked me into moving here to California. I was living in Oregon, so I moved here, and over the course of about six months, I had four concussions from him, and my body was full of bruises, and he got all of my belongings from my apartment. I had so many head injuries that it was causing me like not to be able to think clearly. Plus I already had a traumatic brain injury. So my judgment was often, I ended up deciding I had to leave him or I was going to die. Uh, police weren't helping me. Nobody was helping me. I didn't have, everybody like loved him and thought he was great, but I was getting beaten up and I was going to end up dead. So I had to make a choice to take off LA was the you know closest biggest place to go for resources and stuff so I ended up out here but it's been really hard. How long have you been out here? I've been out here for about a year. You stated you have a traumatic brain injury. What does that mean for the audience? I was in a car accident when I was 12. I damaged my right temporal lobe and my right parahippocampus, and then uh, it also caused me to have a seizure disorder, so I've had seizures since I was 12 years old, too. How are you able to manage uh, that, these health challenges out here in the street? It's excruciatingly difficult. <laughs> There's no resources. When I, That was another thing is when I, was, when I did have a place to live, I had caregivers that came over every day to help me here. I have nobody to help me. I'm completely vulnerable. I'm having a very hard time getting my needs met. I just learned a lot about um, un, for women to be unhoused is incredibly dangerous. It's for it's unhoused for men too, right. but women they have a certain a unique set of circumstances, um, like uh, rapes and assaults. Yeah. Have you have experienced that or witnessed any of this going on? Oh yes, I've almost been raped several times. What I do instead of fighting off a man who's more powerful than I am is I just give in because I feel like if I there's no help, there's no police help, so there's nobody to call to help for so my choice is to get beaten up or just to give up sex 
and they're you know like they're forceful they're tearing your clothes off you know it's a no-win situation so and I've also known very you know a lot of female friends that are that have gotten raped I've seen like I've, several times because now I have a dog I didn't have a dog before but I have a dog now so she will wake me up and so I've prevented a lot of that from happening now but um like there's been men coming up to me like they were gonna rape me but she deters them quite a bit because she's big enough to you know look like she'll cause some damage so I've I've had it a lot better off than a lot of women but they have I've known women that have gotten raped out here so let's go to show you why some of the unhoused has pets, but your pet is also is a, a deterrent. It's also one of your service dogs, right? Yes. She's a seizure alert dog, and one of her duties is to protect me during a seizure. It's listed as one of her duties. Even the neurologist put that down as one of the things that I needed. But the police will say, you're not allowed to have a guard dog. And I have to argue with them and tell them I am allowed <laughs> to have a dog that protects me during a seizure, and she's allowed to be trained for that. But they don't like you having any protection out here at all. I have to agree because I, many times that they look at me as dangerous. I do martial arts and they considered me a triple threat. They had 13 cops for me. I'm thinking I was going to lash out when they are going to attack or harass me. But one of the questions I want to ask you is that you said that you feel powerless out here. Why do you feel so powerless? It's been ingrained into me to realize that when I w had a place to live, I was treated a lot differently by law enforcement and by the, you know, the, the social community around me, everything else. Being just simply being unhoused, I have been treated so unfairly. And I realize it's just trial and error or learning behaviorally how things work is that there's no there's no help for us out here. We, we have less rights. I believe we have less rights than prisoners. Prisoners can complain about the way that they're treated and they get lawyers that come in and, and help them. We complain, nobody wants to hear it, nobody wants to listen there. They assume the stigma attached to being homeless is that we're all on drugs, we're all prostitutes, we're all asking for it in some way, we've all done something wrong. You know, nobody believes your story. We don't have a voice. People aren't allowed to say, this is what happened to me. This is really the first time anybody's even asked me what happened to you. If I start to talk about it in other situations, I'm shut down. Oh, we all have problems. And then they shut you down. So everybody has a story. I have to say, I agree. Everyone has a story and your voice, it counts, it matters. That was the very reason why I did this podcast, because I want the world to know. And for the ones that says, I had something that really bothered me. A professor stated that they already know about the suffering of unhoused people, that they wanted to hear the happy stories. And I say to this, that invalidates your experience because your story may not be happy, but it's a reality that you have a right to have your voice heard and if you want to hear happy stories then turn on sesame street but this is reality and i want all of my community members that are unhoused to have a happy story and that one of the ways is to tell their story so these things can stop so has the community singled you out when you stood up for yourself Oh yeah, definitely. As far as like happy stories goes too, I was gonna say that's a delusional. We, uh, when we're out here, this is this is a hard life to live, and we have to tell ourselves a story, a fake story, just to get through every day. It's not it's not fair because you have to somehow put a smile on your face and act like you're you're happy, even though you're miserable in the situation. Because otherwise, society treats you badly because you're not sitting there acting like this is fun, man. I'm loving this experience no there our dignity is taken down so much by being in this situation and there it's not 
one thing that I have a problem with is that they're acting like we're subpar humans. We're not. We a lot of us can be. We're still registered voters. We're still tax-paying citizens because in the city of California, anytime you buy anything in the store, you're paying taxes. So we pay the taxes for these police officers that are harassing us and treating us with no dignity or no support. We're we, we're paying taxes that fund some of these. Um, you know, uh, services that we're getting, but nobody takes that into consideration. What we're told on top of it, oh, you're supposed to be happy about your situation. Why am I supposed to be happy about it? Exactly. Uh, when you you stated there are medical issues, um, does the medical per- personnel that you've had because you uh, told me a story, and I want the rest of the listening audience to hear this. So tell us what you told us. Well, I was in the hospital. I had a, I don't want to say what it was because it's embarrassing, but I had an emergency situation that required surgery. And part of my background is that I went to school to be a nurse, but because of my brain traumas and seizures over the years, I've lost a lot of my intelligence, I guess. So I know, though, I still have enough of that basic knowledge to know that I was in trouble, you know, health-wise. And I've had jobs where I've had good insurance. I know the difference between good insurance and not having good insurance. They're still getting paid for what they're doing with your low-income insurance, but they don't do the same job that they do when you have better insurance. I don't know why. But what happened to me is I needed surgery for the situation that I had, and I overheard the doctor in the hallway talking to another doctor saying, about homeless people, I wish we could just round them all up and take uh, ship them off to Siberia and force them to work because that's the problem. They don't want to work. That's not the problem that people don't want to work. Most people that are in this situation are in this situation because they have mental problems, they have physical problems, they have there's reasons they can't work. But our income is below. When you get on Social Security, they act like, oh, that's free money. You should be happy. Well, it's below the poverty level. It's below minimum wage we're we don't have even enough to cover housing and for some reason the housing that's available to us we're expected to jump through unreasonable hoops and kiss on I was going to say that is so true. Like I was, I was going back in the time to hear when I was trying to apply, and I'm right, applying for housing now. The insurmountable obstacles, based on societal pressures and biases, drug, drug testing, and background check, and you got to go, you know, make sure you're not making any money, or you're making this amount of money. If you are, you're doing fraud, you're a criminal, or all this kind of craziness, just for to get some, get off the street, and then when you go to shelters, that's another nightmare because then you got uh, staff that really have no business with dealing with unhoused people at all. But I don't know if you've had any experiences with uh, difficulties of that. Can you talk about that? Yeah, in fact, uh, I... I just had an experience with that where the, I was told I for the last like year or so I had been working with an agency that I thought was going to help me get housed and come to find out after six months of working with them and no prospects for housing at all I said you know what's going on and they said oh well you're just not volunteering enough your personality isn't sunshiny enough you're not doing you know like you're not jumping basically through our hoops enough so we aren't putting you on this for housing what are you talking about the government's funding these housing programs for people there the requirement is that i'm you know have um uh disabilities and that i'm a survivor of domestic violence these are things that should bump me up on the list not whether or not i'm kissing your guys's butts for you know 
to make you feel good about giving me this service. You don't. It's not your service to give. It's just you're there to you know help me, assist me to get that. But that's not what they're doing. They're making us feel like we should we, be grateful. Well, and you would be grateful if you're getting the service. <laughs> but we don't get Very the service. True. That's Very the true. problem. We don't get any services. We get told that we have to, you know, like keep. I I said, really, that's the the thing. Then I'm even willing to do that. I'm willing to to volunteer and do all this stuff. So I signed up for volunteering. They made it a game where it was I showed up to be a volunteer. Then they said, oh, sorry, you're not. Get, you can't be here because you have seizures. Blah blah blah. All this stuff. Just like they made it impossible for me to even jump through their hoops so it's just a game it's a psychotic game and it's crazy it's i agree so um after you're out here and you're living among the uh the, the, i guess the mercies of the winds yeah. and and rains of heaven i'm going to ask you um how does law enforcement treat you well they are not they they're I don't, oh, that's so hard because i want to scream about that it's okay, so cool. hateful spray, it's so hateful and for no reason oh, okay you know like i'm not i feel like i'm a law-abiding citizen as much as i possibly can be i'm a law-abiding citizen many on the house are but go ahead why do you what happens with them there was a situation where i contacted law enforcement about something that i saw that i thought was really really bad and i wanted to do my part i feel like i'm not a great human being if i don't report this so i reported it and when i did law enforcement turned around and started harassing the neighborhood that i was in every day parked in front of my tent specifically so that everybody knew i was the one who told and started just harassing me harassing me harassing me they made me they they, they when they talk to me they don't speak to me like kindly they speak to me i asked them one time they told us all to get out of our tents recently i got out of my tent I was being cooperative i wasn't being harmful at all answering all of their questions that they asked they were hatefully asking and then in the end i i asked them is it okay if i leave get out of here what i'm being nice to you there's no reason to use force and that's a way of using force even if it's verbal there's no reason to use force against a person that's not causing you harm why does it that people believe that police officers are so nice and so deserving of all the accolades because if you look on the tv when a a police officer gets shot they make up this uh this poster child like he was this angel of light um that you know if anybody speaks out when they do a police police does citizens difficult like police brutality or do things like this why is it such met with such disbelief or just outright uh angry angry messages Personally, I want to be a kind human being. I want to feel bad for people. I want to feel like they're heroes and that they are angels and stuff. But my experience with them is different. Being in this situation is different than being in a house situation. They put, I feel, my personal feeling on this is that they feel like they have to be nice all the time to the public so we're the people that don't matter and they can let out all their aggressions on us and no we have no voice we're never believed so i feel like we're just their doormat that they can wipe their feet on very very apt metaphor one more thing i wanted to say is that did any of the neighborhood uh, target you because you was at and you living in their neighborhoods or did you encounter any of that yeah, I just had to leave that area. I don't I don't go back down there very often. What happened? A lot. I don't even want to say. I don't... It was bad. I got maced. I got... 
it, it, it really felt like it was, it really felt like there was people that were doing it for the police. It was not, it didn't feel like, it felt like, because I was always got along in that neighborhood that wasn't, you know, like I'd never had any issues with anybody and all of a sudden some people from another neighborhood or somewhere I don't even know showed up. There was uh, people that came in vehicles that, like I got, I got treated very badly and it was, I, I had to leave without any of my stuff. I had to leave, I just, that morning got up and took off and didn't come back because it was that bad it was in los angeles i think i don't really want to say oh well <laughs> so i by your non-answer we understand um is there anything what would be the best way for us to help you just believe when people are telling you their horror stories just listen to them and believe them that it maybe they're giving you you know like the public information that you don't have and maybe you know maybe you can learn something from this and we can change it i'm all for like i'm not i'm not saying okay let's just kill all the law enforcement or let's just kill all the people at the shelter i'm saying let's make a change believe us that we're telling you the truth we're telling you that this is the treatment that we receive and and not every person out here is you know doing something harmful and a lot of the people that are doing something that's harmful is because they're mentally ill and also, let's point out, let's be honest, there are more house criminals than there are in house people. Oh, yeah, there's <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, and that was another thing that we talked about, too, earlier, was that, you know, people are saying, oh, they're drug addicts. Drug addicts are in every aspect of society. There's functioning drug addicts. There's celebrities that are functioning drug addicts. They're, that has nothing to do with it. The people that are homeless and, and drug addicts is usually because they're so freaking harmed in whatever way, abusive ways, men and women are so harmed by either society or victimized by it because they're mentally Ill, Ill or because they're they're disabled. That doesn't, disabled and mentally ill aren't two in the same. They're, it's weeding out the weak. It's the weakest, they don't believe anymore in our country that, that we're only as strong as our weakest link. They believe now, let's weed out the weak. What are you gonna, it's like saying you wanna get rid of all the pigeons, they're, they exist, you know, it's not gonna happen. It's not, we're not going to get weeded out, you know, like we're, we do exist and there's a, there's a value to us too, but nobody sees that or tries to tap into that at all. They just try to act like we don't exist, but we do exist. We're not invisible, you know? So a lot of people are making a loud noise to say, I'm here, you know? This is why We the Unhoused is in existence. And like I say, thank you very much, Lauren, for your time. I really am touched by your story. And I feel the need more so when I hear your story and many other stories that I've come across to refortify my efforts to get the story, not just the fluff pieces, because they already are out there for people to feel good. Mm -hmm. But are you really going to use the stories that you hear that are not fluff pieces to bring about the change? And that is on you as a society yeah. that, that sits in these long, lovely homes that go home and lays their heads down on expensive pillows that have to get their chai lattes or their pumpkin spice lattes or they drink their mimosas. Um, you have to ponder, what role do I play into this? Am I affecting the change or am I a part of the change? And if I'm not affecting the change, then I am part of the change because I'm complicit by standing by and saying nothing. This is Theo Henderson from We The Unhoused, and I thank you all for listening. And may we all again meet in the light of understanding.
Eleanor Roosevelt said, a woman is like a hot tea bag. You never know how strong she is until she gets in hot water. This guest, Ken Kim, has a story of the hot water she has been in countless times. She is still willing to fight for her rights to affordable housing, and here is her story. While we are in this conversation about uh, economic injustice as well as housing injustice, I have another resident from uh, Chinatown uh, Echo Park as well, and Chinatown Echo Park because I've spoken to two people. So let us introduce my new guest. She is another hard worker and she wants to talk to us about her story. So tell us what your name is. My name is Kian Ng. I've been living in uh, 9 Evans Street apartment A for 15 years. Usually I come from Cambodian, okay? I left my countries after the war, 1979. Okay. We, uh, wow. uh, yes. Were you, were you a kid or were you an adult? A little kid, oh, yes. Okay, okay. But everything hit me, it's like a nightmare for me. And, but we didn't, we never give up. And talk about my whole situation life, I never lived in California. I used to live in Virginia. Oh, wow. Okay. I have a sponsor by Mennonite Church, mm-hmm. 1980. Uh-huh. We, uh, they sponsored us to United States. Mm-hmm. But start the beginning, 1979. We left Cambodia after the war. Did your Did your parents come with you, or you by yourself? My my mom and dad and my uh, brother and sister. We came together. So their parents, her parents, are here as well. So. Yes, but they not live in California. Oh, okay. They live in Virginia. Only me that live in here. Oh. Yes. You a rebel. <laughs> so you wanted to leave uh, Virginia to come here. So what made you come? My health. My oh, health went oh, down so bad. Oh, oh, uh, year okay. 2003, I almost lost my life. Oh, my goodness. Yes, yes. Um, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, it's all right. It's okay. So you, I, you look healthier now. Yeah, so yeah. How, how did you come to Chinatown? What did you look here? Well, first time I have a very good best friend. His name Bobby. Uh, but I'm brought friend him look like my brother. Mm-hmm. He take care of me everything. Mm-hmm. See, and I talk to him. He say, "Well, Kim, you come to LA, mm-hmm. try to find out what's going on." Mm-hmm. First, I came to visit. I didn't plan to live here <laughs> because it's too much on me. Yeah, yeah. And then he said, "Well, just try to come. Mm-hmm. If you don't like it, you can go back to Virginia." Mm-hmm. I say, "Okay, I came." And in year 2004 on June, I came to LA. But on that time, I don't have no job. Okay, I live in the basement with a friend. I paid $300. And then Bobby told me, uh, what kind of job did you do interesting to work? I say any kind, because I want to be on my own two feet. I don't want to depend on the government money. I don't depend on nobody except myself. And then suddenly, I got a job at the Hollywood Park Casino. I worked since the first day they hired me. On August the 22nd, Year 2004, uh, year 2004, and after that I worked there for one week and then decided to move out oh. because I don't like to live in the basement because a lot of dust, <laughs> yeah, yeah, noises, yeah. and I, I want to keep my health is healthy. Yeah, exactly. And then finally I found the place that I live in 920 Edward Street on April 15, oh. year 2004. I lived there since the day one until now. 
So uh, tell us, like, could you mentioning what your health is? Again, um, I'm pointing out, I'm hearing the interspersion of the bootstrapping model. Like you came here, you wanted to stand up on your own two feet, you wanted to work hard, and you believed that the, this country was the land of milk and honey. You got a job, you got a place, and but this milk and honey became poisonous. How, what happened? Tell us what's going on now. Okay. On last year, on uh, July 16, and the first owner by Robert Chang, he gave us the notice, say, oh, somebody come inspect the house, keep, told everybody keep clean and nice and neat. Right. And I told him, I said, okay, no problem. Mm -hmm. And I told everybody to keep the house clean and nice because I've been keep the house for 15 years for them. Mm -hmm. Put the trash can, everything nice and clean mm -hmm. for, for 15 years. Since July 16, we received that letter, just come to inspection. Mm -hmm. And we did, clean and nice. And after two weeks later on, we received the conviction note for 60 days that we have to move out. Mm -hmm. I was shocked when I get off from work. I don't know what to do. Right. My whole heart just sink to the bottom of nowhere. You know, I just start to cry. Mm -hmm. Think to myself, I say, what, the, what can we do, you know? Mm -hmm. And then suddenly, her grandmom come and talk to me and say, oh, Kim, we have some uh, community of Chinatown that can help us. I say, oh, you sure? She say, yes. <laughs> and then we come to her apartment, we meeting. I meet with Gray, uh, a lot of bunch of community of Chinatown. I remember most of their name. Mm -hmm. Every single Sunday, we have a meeting at, nine at 10 o'clock. What try to do to fight for our living there. And then on August, the, uh, if I'm not wrong, it's on August the 8th on Saturday, we have a uh, uh, conference mm -hmm. talking to people. I was shocked. I don't believe it. Mm -hmm. I, I thought I'm so so lonely by myself and mm -hmm. my two boys, uh, my, my son, you know. Yeah. And But I see all the community of Chinatown, they come, all neighbors, to support us. I was shocked. I said, wow, in this world, it's not just only me by myself in here, you know. A lot of people right here come and support us, you know. And then I told myself, I said, Kim, you have to stand up to fight for our living. We not beg for them to give us a free money to live. We work hard every single day, from sick to whatever, you know. And then I meet all these people and I try to, to explain. Every single day I try to call, go to work. I ask myself, why all these rich people try to step us down so bad to the bottom of nowhere? We just ask the Lord play to live, that's it. Why they, don't, they cannot understand that? And after that, I meet Gray, and they give us support and everything. We try to fight back. And then I went to talk to my friend at work. They say, Kim, you have to fight back. This is uh, American freedom. I say, freedom what? They will take us, go to court. They go sue us. They sue for what? You, got, you didn't do anything wrong. You know, like, if you convict some law, kill somebody, do something, you're not. Why are you scared to go to the court? And I say, no, I've never been to the court. I never convicted anything, drugs, smoking, anything. I just work every single day to raise my three sons, you know? So here is the thing, like, which we have in common is the very same thing as being out here. They do the same thing to us. They, uh, I've done to you guys. We've, 
we don't do anything, they could cause so much problems. The rich, they don't like to see us. They'll call the police and harass us and got to go to the court and things like that. And we have the same struggle. Our fight is your fight. And I want our listeners to understand that. And I want you to understand it. And no matter how great we can be, how well behaved we are, we still in the same position as you are. So what is going on now? How are you? I feel so proud of you that you are fighting back and understanding this. So what's the next step? Well, next step, like I told myself and I told the CC community and uh, the fight tenders, if we want to stay the play that we live for a long time, mm-hmm. we need to fight together. Yes. Okay? And I do my best to do what I can, mm-hmm. you know, to support myself and my, my boy too. And I, li- I need the play to live and a warm play to stay. That's all. I don't bother nobody. I don't beg anything. Every single day since we came to the United States, the first day my dad worked so hard to raise us. We never on food stamp, we never on warfare, nothing from the government. We work our own life. So even if you do have, it's, it's still that's not a reason to be attacked. If you are on food stamps or need help from the government, you don't. That's not giving you the right to uh, terrorize people. Uh, these people are needing help. You guys need help, just like I need help and everyone else. Um, one of the things I want to point out as well. Is last thing I want you to tell us is what will be the best way to help you. I want to whole world to look at us, try to support us to keep us a place to live. Anybody, it don't matter they have rich or poor, homeless, anybody, we are human beings. We need to play to live like they do too. Thank you. Okay? We don't matter they rich, they come and kick us like that. Either we poor, no money, but we work hard to pay our rent every single month. We never miss a day. We pay on time, make sure, everything. But they're not so happy. They try to kick us out like uh, we are criminal, you know. That is a lesson to be to be had for the hard worker or the bootstrap theory. No matter how hard you work, no matter how much you follow the law, you are still in the same boat and the same position. I thank you all for listening and I thank you for your story. And may we all again meet in the light of understanding. most of history, Anonymous was a woman. Virginia Woolf said this, however, Sharice, a granddaughter of a tenant being targeted and harassed, is speaking on her behalf. Here's her story. Good afternoon, this is Theo Henderson from Weedy Unhoused. Today I have a very special group of people that I want to introduce. But before we get down into the introductions and the nitty gritty of the conversation, I want to talk about something that's a little look broader. When we think of being unhoused, and I have been showing people on the show, people on the show have been uh, many people that have been living on the streets. However, houselessness takes many permutations. For example, there are a lot of college students that are unhoused that are gonna be on my show. There are people that have been living in their RVs, and here's another dimension of it, and this is one step before complete houselessness. What I'm talking about is something that happened to me, is one of the, when the rents get expensive after being sick or having um, a new landlord, being unhoused becomes a very immediate reality for many people. If you don't have the financial wherewithal or the family support to 
help you through this uh, factor. So speaking on behalf of her grandmother, we have a guest in the audience. Um, we're going to talk about a population that has largely has been hidden. So let's get down to the introductions and she's going to tell us a little bit about her grandmother and uh, where in the country did she originally come from. Hi, this is Cherise and my grandmother lived in 920 Everest Street in Echo Park and were Vietnamese American. And my grandma been living there for about four to five years, I would say. And she been through so much and she just want a better life here. And she, after she came here, then she sponsored her and then got her daughter and grandkids here. So they live over there in 920 Everett, which is fine for the old landlord and stuff. Uh, was she part of the Vietnam era or was she uh, before or after? What do you mean Vietnam era? Um, there are some residents that live not too far here from here. They came, they were um, basically uh, seeking asylum through the Vietnam War. So. Oh no, she's not seeking asylum. So uh, when she got here, uh, what did she do for a job? Doing anything, just helping out with the house and stuff like that, cooking for us and stuff. So she was a homemaker. She kept the family uh, nucleus together. So let's take a minute because you stated that there were three different times, and I wanted the audience who doesn't know uh, to walk them through the situation. When the first time that you guys got a notice, what was this about? What happened? Yeah, when we first got it from the original landlord. Who was that? That was Robert Chow. Yeah, um, he wanted to sell his plates because his son didn't want it. So he had to sell it, which we understand. But for to kick us out, that was really harsh. These people have been living here for years. And just suddenly we saw the notice and my grandma was really stressed. She didn't know what's going on and stuff. And all these people are working people. And like, why are they kicking out? And I read the paper. Okay. So what did you guys do to stop that? Well, the good thing is that all the tenants are doing group work, so they set up and they went to the court, but obviously the court couldn't help them. They said, it's have to be until you get evicted, then we can help. When I saw this situation, I was like, the landlord picking on working class people, these people are hard worker, and their English is very limited. It's, it's really upset me, and because they know they couldn't get helped and stuff like that. So good thing that I remember Craig, which I met at my uncle. Craig who? Craig Wong. He's a nice guy. He's from CCED, which is really nice with the group that helping people with housing. And I remember him and I gave him a call and then he came over and he talked to the tenants and we was gathering the group. So that was the first time. After that, you guys obviously were successful if you gone through three. So what happened to the second time? Because this didn't just stop and it was a happy ending. You guys danced down the street. So what happened after the second time? No, the second time we're still fighting on. They went to protest at the new landlord. They still want to- Who's the new landlord? I forgot his name. Okay. Yeah, but he have a jewelry store in downtown, rich family. Um, it's got to do with Envoy properties, I think. So yeah, it's just a hassle. They went to their house to protest and stuff like that. Then the landlord couldn't take it anymore. They sold the place the third time to VF Development. First, I was, to me, when I heard that, I told my grandma, well, it's their place. They're allowed to sell it. It's okay as long as they don't do anything. That's it. And then I looked up VF Development 
I was like, uh-oh, this is trouble, because I saw what they did to the previous apartment. I was like, this doesn't look good. So I was praying that nothing gonna happen, and things happen, and they keep changing the rent three times. First, they send wrong address, second, they give it to this property in Santa Monica, and then the third time, it's they change the payment again and tell them to go to CVS, or they have to pay online, which is $35 fee or the CVS $4 fee, cash only. And we have to send the code and stuff like that. But with the code, my cousin took him like two days. They didn't even reach back to us. And the time is almost up already. It's just a hassle. I just feel like at this point, it's just harassment. And they just sent us recently that they're gonna increase the rent after sending us eviction notice. It was like, what's going on? That sounds so confusing. First, you're going to evict me, and then you're going to send a rent increase or before the eviction. So as I'm getting evicted, I have to pay the rent increase as well. That sounds crazy. So um, what is the next step? What is, how is the community dealing with this? Well, we're going to gather the community and signature and do something about it because these people are going through a lot, and getting evicted is mentally and physically trained. Now, this is the very thing that I want to talk about. Um, I may have had a meeting this week, and I had made this very big point. A lot of the people, residents that are being evicted now are, um, have been, from what many accounts, are hardworking. And in that idea is that there was a pecking order um, because of the unhoused um, that were hardworking, and some of us still have jobs, and we're still on the street. And yet we have been pitted against each other to think that we are not worthy to be helped. And I want this podcast to be an education for the unhoused as well as the working class that are in there, that we're not criminals, that we, we have had places too, and we are on the other end of what you may be going through now. So as a result of that, if we can band our, our, our resources together instead of blaming and pointing fingers at each other and using uh, the weaponized sources of white supremacy against each other, we could be able to stop a lot of this kind of thing. Um, so is there anything you want us to do as the listeners to be able to help you guys? Just sign petition and speak up. Speak up for justice and stuff and against these evil predator landlord and stuff like that. Buying small apart- apartments in the community and then started kicking tenants out and remodeling the property and raise out outrageous price rent increases, 200% increases for these apartments. But they raise this against you guys because you guys um, are hard workers. Because here's the thing: the bootstrapping theory is if you pick up your if yourself up by your bootstraps, then everything will be fine. But you guys, like you said yourself, work hard, but you still are being um, attacked and harassed. How? So the bootstrapping work model doesn't work. It's been a smokescreen, and now the smoke is clearing and realize we are all in the same boat, no matter what boat we came in under. Uh, this is Theo Henderson from the We The Unhoused, and I thank you all for listening, and may we again meet in the light of understanding. This episode could not have been done without the help and support of Down. that I'm so excited to say that some of you guys have contributed to my Patreon. And I give a very heartfelt thank you to all of you 
that have reached out and, and been impacted by my episodes as well as financially contributed. I want to give particular thanks to my editor who has been diligently uh, and unsung that has helped me uh, get these podcast episodes out. Carl Nieto. I also want to thank Jed Perriott, excellent organizer in order for me to get into the unhoused encampments in order for me to interview some people. I'd like to thank the residents of Chatsworth. I'd like to thank the residents of downtown LA, Echo Park, as well as Hollywood and other areas, not only in Los Angeles, but also around the world. I also wanted to thank some very key people that have helped me while I have been unhoused. Uh, that is uh, Michelle Liu from Zime Bistro, Zen and Mario, Craig Wong from CCED, as well as many of the neighborhood residents here in Chinatown. Again, we are our strongest by our weakest link, and our weakest link is stronger when we band together. So when any of us have faced an insurmountable challenge, it is not always necessary to use or demonize a vulnerable population, but we can do better by embracing and helping one another instead of weaponizing police and city council apparatus. Thank you all, and may we again meet in the light of understanding. Rosa Parks, the matriarch of the civil rights era, is remembered saying, I would like to be known as a person who is concerned about freedom and equality and justice and prosperity for all people. This next guest is Melissa Sadero, a person that has been moved to see the income injustice as well as food insecurity and food injustice. And she decides to do something about it. She goes to different encampments and provide fresh quality fruit from produce, um, subs, uh, cold cuts, you name it. Quality food that you and I would eat in, restaur in restaurants or in grocery stores. She doesn't serve that government tasteless or horrific food that sometimes shelters do because of financial limitations. Without further ado, let us welcome <laughs> Melissa Asadero. Feminist before the term was made. This huh? was in the 40s Manila, okay? This yeah. was in 1940s Manila. So, oh my God, I'm like, <laughs> I'm on the mic! Okay. This was like 1940s Manila. And wow. so, like, imagine, you know, like, um, post World War, yeah. like, yeah. In, you know, in this kind of country, mm -hmm. and having someone like that, a woman, owning her own business being able to hire i think at the peak of her career she hired like at least she had over like like 90 seamstresses like work. it was that successful so she had a sense of activism too so yes absolutely and i think like um the town that my mom grew up in is called samila mm -hmm. and um because my grandmother hired people from that town right she understood what each family was going through mm -hmm. so my mom even told me there like there were there were times where some of her workers would need extra help and so they would loan you know they would like loan like my grandmother would loan the money mm -hmm. and that's that kind of stuff um, and so it was always like this thing where my mom said there was always food at the table. Mm -hmm. She knew that sometimes it was always for them. She knew that there was kids from like, you know, from the workers or exactly. whatever exactly. that would come through. Right. And that 
my mom always knew. I think that was a marker too of like wealth for for our family was our food always had to be like that. There's always to be like a nice spread. Right, right, right. So I realized I do that. Yes, yes. I do that in my work. Uh -huh. Like I feel like I want I want our unhoused folks to feel at home. That's why I want an abundance exactly. of food, exactly. not just an abundance but also choice. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, the choice that you, see, that you get at home. Mm -hmm. Just because we have beef today, mm -hmm. and like I was telling like Lex, just because we have beef doesn't mean like, you know, like say if you're a vegetarian, you're not, you're still gonna be hungry. Mm -hmm. So how about we have like a beautiful dish of vegetables? That way everyone can eat, right? Or like uh, when I was getting the food and like, there's a gentleman out in Echo Park. He likes uh, hummus. He, he loves yes. your hummus yeah, because yeah, he's yeah. a vegetarian. Mm -hmm. And when you brought the vegetarian wraps, yeah, yeah, he, yeah. he was able to eat uh, um, more so too. Yeah, so, yeah. Okay. and I think that's sort of what it is. I what I, what really got me was family. It was, it was the base of what I work of my work is because my family showed me by example that you that really the language for me was food it's always going to be food for me that's why i think there's so much passion behind what i do and social activism is a food <laughs> of course but i think that also too was kind of natural for my grandmothers because i felt like again like you're right my my, my, my grandmothers are all were natural feminists at the time where a lot of them um, were, were just expected to be homemakers, but they all were entrepreneurs. They were all businesswomen, and they all knew like they had to do more to be able not just to put food on the table, but to make sure that everything, everyone, not just their families, but everyone was fed. And you so know, I think that, that I think that runs through my I think that courses through my veins too. I feel like that's that that's that's where it is. It's it's who I am. You know, there's a similarity. Um, we were talking about it, Melissa. There's a similarity in the African-American community as well as the Filipino community, where and during the civil rights era and, and many times, um, there were uh, African-American women cooking for the civil rights leaders and well as uh, connecting with the family because I, due to the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow and things like that, we had a lot of play cousins and a lot of yes, people from, exactly. you know, uh, from the neighborhood that we fed because we all were in the same uh, economic uh, dire straits. So uh, I see that link as well. So That's very much it. That, like, you're right. Like, I think similar in Filipino fa family structure. We have, I, we also have play cousins. They're not related to us by blood, but it's just like because they're tight family friends. My parents just taught us that just because they're not yours doesn't mean that you're not responsible for them too. It's like that that sort of um, connection of responsibility of, of community responsibility that I think I learned from my parents. Just because we have food, you have to make sure that everyone gets fed. And so I think that's just that's my, the base of what my work. Um, and also kind of honoring the, the work of women, like your mom, um, during the civil rights era, the work of the Black Panthers. Um, I've read a lot about the Black Panthers, and I think I want to make sure that people understand that history of food justice as well. That the Black Panthers were very much key in making sure that you know a lot of our um, food programs in the U.S., especially breakfast and like food, and food for kids was started by them. 
and I think that's what I wanted. But I think that's also kind of what I want to use as a platform to do for my work. Fun fact, the women and children, women, infant, and children can, is from the Black Panthers. That's where that model is. So where there is uh, low-income families from all races and all walks of life that they understand, that was one of the positive things, the Black Panthers. That's one of his enduring legacies. So whenever you hear about Black Panthers in the negative light, they had, that's, of course, not true. They had a lot of positive things. I've been, I've been actually studying a lot of what the Black Panthers did and even... Um, I, I attended a few workshops out in like in Cal Poly. There was a scholar who actually like did it I think, on her dissertation, but she talked about how um, just even the framework of the Black Panthers like free food program was just phenomenal in their in, in its scale because they were able to just you know um, already kind of integrate like existing sort of groups and communities and systems. That's what made it. Well, that's what made it successful. Like you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Work with the groups that are already there, and I think that's also what I'm trying to do. That's how that's how our partnership got built, right? Because right. you already know the framework of Chinatown. Yeah. Harvey knows the framework of our public. Um, you know, there's some of my unhoused friends in already in K Town also do the same thing. Why would I have to double your work when you already understand, have the connections to your friends? Um, and so I think that's what it is. I think that's what makes I think my work different. Is I want to make sure that the leaders behind getting the food is are, you know are you guys. I think that's one one thing too. I think I I want to keep pushing for is leadership in our unhoused community has to be from unhoused folks. And for me, I will model a lot of that stuff and take. Um, you know, like advice from you, and look at how look at the impact that we've made. We like, I mean, we talked we talked about this. Like, we we helped a family the other day yeah. with like you know ten kids. Yeah. You because you you knew how to, to talk to her. So I think that's 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 it too. Like it's it's I think it's beyond it's beyond food, <laughs> but the food is a gateway, right? It's, <laughs> it's gateway. incidentally it's funny we say this, which we're right now at uh, Chinatown Restaurant in Jake Walk, and we have. The big spread as well. <laughs> For the listeners, we have hot garlic beef, uh, Shanghai ribs, sweet and sour pork, and uh, sesame chicken. So uh, if you're hungry, you want to make want to come down and eat here. Uh, so one other question I have to ask is like, um, where do you see yourself with this movement? Wow. Um, well, I, I basically, I'm, I'm very much kind of steeped in the food justice part of it, the same way as your mom and just the women that were feeding the movement. I think I, I, I'm passionate about feeding the movement. Um, I'm, I'm passionate about making sure that people are nourished. Um, and to remind ourselves, too, that, um, you know, that... So we need to be, you know, we need to be cared for. And I think that's sort of the symbol, symbolism for me of food is just that we have to be cared for. By um, and I think I will always see myself in food. Um, hopefully at some point help change policy and um, how we can get food to, to, to unhoused communities. I think I study the, the, the food system so much and I'm just so passionate about making sure that, you know, that we just have food on the table. Many unhoused members are receiving what is called SNAP, food benefits. Mm-hmm. But President Trump has uh, decided to cut that for over mm-hmm. 700,000 people. 
and why Melissa's work is so important is because you have limitations on the food that you get. Um, and for example, I can't go and use my SNAP benefits uh, for this restaurant because this restaurant is not approved by the city. I can only go to some places, and some places may be needed, it's great, but they're not always he uh, healthy. For example, uh, and they also, the distance, they also are in places where Neon House has to go far-flung places, and if you have financial uh, issues with transportation, you can't get to them. So when she's able to provide fresh food like you would eat in the house um, that's like good uh, sandwiches, boar's head, things like that. This is why when I notice anytime I bring these things, the unhoused community light up or they're surprised at the quality of food. You just don't throw your discarded foods, but it's like still packaged. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, that's sort of obviously always going to be key in my work is that I'm not going to go after things just because it's there. I want to make sure that the unhoused community gets access to food that we get at home. I'm not going to, I was telling Lex earlier, I'm not going to be feeding the, the, the sandwiches I have. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm going to feed those things, the same things to my mom. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? To my brother. Mm -hmm. Like, I want to make sure that the same thing that I would feed my family mm -hmm. is what I feed this is what I bring out here. Because that's just that's that's what everyone deserves. Like food is food is a human right. And I think like that's always gonna be where I'm gonna go and whatever intersection I have with this work is always gonna be with me. What lessons do the listeners can take away in order for it to help you as well as to understand about food equity? Wow. God, you're this is a great question. <laughs> I think I think what really what it's, it's, it's connected to so many different things. Uh, like I was telling Lex, it's it's hard to address food justice, different branches of food justice, without kind of seeing the other parts. Um, just because uh, we have, you know, like there's. God, I don't even know where to start. It's just such a big problem. Um, I have friends who own corner stores in South South Central, um, and she has worked. She's working on healthy food access in that area, and because she knows that you know there isn't a like a healthy grocer for miles. Um, you know, I know like like Danny. Danny is similar where he has you know a corner store in Skid Row, because food is so central and it's like access point for a community. It's, it's really hard just to frame this in just one answer. It's, it's like, to be able to get food, you have to make sure that, you know, like, say, let's frame it with rent. Just think about the, the percentage that you use for your, for your paycheck to right. pay for rent. Right. How much is left just to, to, to get food? Right. What if, say, like, you know, say you're just, like, two, two in your home, or, like, you know, you have, or if you have kids. Mm -hmm. Like, what, what happens after that? You know what I mean? Like, I have some friends who, like, you know, have their kids at school, and, and, and school will just, I think, like, either, like, you know, they, they'll have to, like, call off school for that day. Mm -hmm. They freak out because they, the, the, the moms and the parents, rely on that school lunch to feed their kid that day. So now they're doing a double shift, like, cleaning houses. Now they have to think about what their kid is having to eat that day. These are invisible barriers that people don't see. And so for me, sometimes I feel like, I was saying Lex, sometimes I feel like 
my work isn't enough. But no, I think because I'm able to help some of these families, just to even bridge the gap between the next time their EBT kicks in, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I've done that so many times where they're like, Melissa, hey, you know, EBT is not going to kick in until the 10th. Can you, you know, can you bring us like, you know, even just like a bag of rice and beans? And I'm just like, that's fine. Mm-hmm. And you know, like at least just that little bit to make sure that they're covered. But this shouldn't be the case. You know what I mean? It shouldn't be the case the same way that like, we shouldn't have to work two jobs to be able to put a roof over our heads. We shouldn't have to like break our backs to be able to just feed our kids. But the fact that I feel like sometimes food is the last thing on people's minds, this is important work. What if you? What about if you hear people say, you know, I got it, I made it, no one gave me anything. Um, if you just, uh, if you just work so hard enough, you'll get all of the successes. Uh, these people just want a handout. If we feed them, they'll bring more friends, and then you know we'll have a big epidemic. What is your thought on that? I think it's kind of ridiculous that people say those things. I, I feel like people don't realize that you, you give someone just a meal or you give them like groceries for a few days. That's not, uh, frankly, sometimes it's nothing. It's, it, they, you don't understand just the framework of what it is for someone who's unhoused. That's, that doesn't, this is not a free handout. It's, it's just a way to keep someone alive. And, um, you know, like for me, it, there's so many things to keep people healthy, even like the lack of sleep or whatever. To me, it's like just making sure that people, it's to me, frankly, it's, I see it as life or death. Where, where, where are folks gonna get the access for, the, for these things? They don't have the money for it. And just because, you know, that we're able to give people food doesn't mean that they're gonna stay out there. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's, there's no connection to, um, uh, giving someone a meal and you know and wanting to stay to stay in the house. I, I don't I don't I don't frankly think that's like the worst. <laughs> like I don't I don't like that thinking at all. You mentioned which is true because I have used sometimes when you brought food uh, when my EBT has to catch or come over in for the six, and people fail to realize that you know Skid Row is wonderful, but Chinatown has uh it's like it has a food distribution now. But prior to that, they did not. So a lot of times you have to stretch bad food because I've been, and then that's another issue that people don't talk about when bad, when you get food poisoned out here. I got food poisoned out here at least six or seven times because eating spoiled food. And that's another reason why I think it's so essential that we understand the food inequity and the, uh, the viewpoint behind it, the worldview behind it. Uh, I was talking to one of the administrators over in the park about how people have these um, fears about people that are in need and they're coming into your neighborhood. And that bothers me because it shows like you don't want to help them. You just don't want to see them and you just want them maybe to magically disappear in the clouds. Uh, any thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. Um, my friend Steve Petromel, um, he, frankly, he was he was feeding the unhoused in Santa Monica for a year at Reed Park. And um, I think it was because of the optics of, of, of having the unhoused in that area is that they, they pushed him out. And I, I don't, frankly, everyone else knew that his what he was doing was was good work. 
And I think that people, a lot of our city leaders are more worried about, you know, kind of the, the, the just, just the visual of people being in housed in areas. And I think that's why sometimes they target us first, those of us who feed, because when they know when people are have food, people are going to come. And I think sometimes they target us just because for that reason. And I think that's why... Um, I think that's why it, it's it's kind of really important to sort of address that it's not. Ugh, I get so <laughs> I get so angry because we're really just trying to make sure that someone isn't hungry. I don't understand how this is. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I think even just you know understanding how people are having a hard time just even getting to a certain place. Think about someone on a wheelchair. Think about someone who's elderly. Think about someone who. You know, doesn't have like two bucks to hop on a freaking bus to just get like food. How are they gonna get fed? Do you know what I mean? And so like, just because we're feeding like down the block doesn't mean that everyone gets to get that food. Like it just doesn't make sense. So just because there's free food doesn't mean that people are want to stay unhoused. That is the most <laughs> that is the most ridiculous way of viewing like feeding the homeless what if let's here's i'm playing devil's advocate as you know um many of listeners know my stance on the fact <laughs> but what is what if i want to enjoy my mimosa breakfast and i see unhoused people getting fed or if i want to walk my dog or i have children and i want don't want them to see suffering what is your thoughts on this I think people need to understand that, that just just seeing someone being fed or seeing the unhoused, that, that, that pales in comparison to what's happening for that person. And I think that would be a good way for, or, or like kind of like a, a good way, like a learning point for them. And I hope that it, it shouldn't, city leaders shouldn't use that as a talking point. That oh, I have to I have to see unhoused people or being fed. I think it'd be important for people to understand what that person is going through and to actually switch out. You know what I mean? Like, it, it pales in comparison because I've 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 been in so many situations where we've had to feed young children who live in cars, who live in tents. Think about being a parent having to figure out how to feed your ten-year-old kid that night. Where are you gonna Where are you gonna get that? We're going to get that food. And so I think what people need to understand is it's not, it's, it's not, um, it's, it's beyond a crisis. It's really beyond a crisis because right now all we're seeing is like, I mean, we can, we can, we, we, we see tents or whatever, but there's so many other things. I was telling Lex, there's so many invisible stories that we don't see. Even if you're housed, you're still food insecure. You're still hungry. Even if you have a roof over your head, you have nothing in your fridge. You know, how, how are you going to get fed? And sometimes people don't have access to those things. And so I think it's important for us to really um, have a larger conversation about food because we need it every day. Food touches every single part of our lives. And for me, it's been amazing to be able to use that as a way to... Um, build trust in communities um, and build community but I think what's important is to change like the language that we have around feeding the homeless because it really it does 
kind of go beyond that and, and, and address other other levels of food insecurity too. So, I hope I answered this question. Yeah, you did. Um, I kind of hijacked another interviewer, but I won't let him do it. Um, like I say, this is a very informative and educational conversation that really must be had. Even what you, I hope you've seen the links between the housed and unhoused. For example, when you house the unhoused person, they're still going to have if, if food insecurity issues. And if people are dealing with rising rents, they're still in dealing with food insecurity. So this is a common link that the politicians that don't like to have this conversation. But I implore all of us to understand and have this conversation with them. You're going to listen to us and you're going to talk about this because this matter to you as well as the unhoused. And when you are trying to evaluate if a candidate is electable because of their position, you need to have this come up in the conversation. And, and to also see how um, how the candidate also addresses um, you know issues around labor, issues around um, SNAP benefits, EBT, all those things are, are fully connected because just because. They, they can't just concentrate on the housing issue or any or, or, or all these things. To be able to, to to keep someone housed and to keep their their family healthy, you have to also address, you know, like stuff that's going on with like SNAP, stuff that's going on with labor, because we got to make sure that that person stays in the job mm-hmm. and also they stay healthy. So there's also you know a host of other like health stuff too that you have to do. So I think. It really is almost just like just all these different agencies, all these different um, sort of sectors working together to make sure that you know what I mean. Like it's it's it's, it's equity across the board, not just housing. But for me, I think because it's been so food focused, um, I, I I don't know. I've been able to kind of I don't know do this work. And people are like, oh, you're gonna. What are you going to do? Are you going to, like, um, people like Jorka, like, going to run for office, whatever. I don't have any interest in politics in that way at all. That is so not my bag. It is not my wheelhouse. I have, we have many people at Coalition who are incredible at policy. But because I also am advocating with them, it's made me a better person in food justice. So I think that's, that's one thing, too. So shout out to everyone out there doing that work. I've become better because of them. Well, there you have it. Um, I want to close with, uh, in Chinatown, there was a low-income grocery store that was with the work with the Business Improvement District and in tandem with uh, Tom Gilmore, they decided to shut this down. Now, I wanted to tell you how this is personal to me, is that grocery store accepted EBT. And it was for unhoused and housed. I can tell, can't tell you how many times that I've seen housed members using EBT and SNAP for them to have fresh food to cook. Mm-hmm. Now the challenge becomes is where is any place in Chinatown that are EBT friendly? So I want you to ponder this because when you have these uh, anti-unhoused sentiment, you also are uh, cutting your nose and spiting your own face as well. This is Theo Henderson with Meeting Unhoused, and I thank you all for listening. And may we again meet in the light of understanding.
any society that fails to harness the energy and creativity of its women is at a huge disadvantage in the modern world. This episode has shown what adversity has presented itself to our guests in various different ways and how they have met the challenge and are still meeting the challenge through creativity, resilience, and the community involvement. However they confronted their individual storms in their lives, they have found the strength to keep going. The women power of this nation can be the power which make us whole and heals the rotten community. Now so shattered by war and poverty and racism. Coretta Scott's King. This is Theo Henderson from Weedy Unhoused. Thank you for listening and may we all again meet in the light of understanding. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Ann Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes Film.com to get tickets now. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome.